We have a lot to talk about, so we're going to get right to it. And I want to begin by just stating that God is with us. Amen? He really is with us. And just the more I study Scripture and the more I see that the way things play out in this world and in our lives and just how, how God is, is in it and He's orchestrating things, um, just the more and more I, I understand that, the more and more I give Him praise and glory because it's evident that He is indeed with us. And this week I, I had to kind of smile because um, even though it's a very serious situation, uh, God's hand is in it. And God, God's hand is in what we're doing right here at Clayton Community Church. Um, as you know, we are a Bible-believing church. We believe in expository preaching, at least that's my conviction from the pulpit is just to go through books of the Bible and allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And uh, by the Lord's leading, you know, months and months ago, God led me to go through the Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so we just so happened to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, which these verses primarily address sexual purity, sexual ethics, and marriage, those, those heavy topics. And I'm not sure if you're aware of what's going on in the world right now, especially um, in the northern, uh, across the northern border. But in Canada right now, um, lawmakers have just made it illegal for Christians or counselors or anybody else to talk to somebody from the LGBTQ community and to encourage them to change. It is now illegal to, from the scriptures to share just what I shared last week. That if, if you are, have same-sex attraction, that uh, if you are practicing homosexuality, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you, can't, you certainly cannot say that um, God can change you. Such as the scripture tells us that such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified by the name of Jesus Christ. You can't tell people that Christ can change you and change your desires. And for that, uh, the penalty for pastors who violate that new law could be up to five years in prison. And so uh, one thing that I noticed that happened, this just happened, uh, one thing that has happened is that pastors from the north in Canada, um, they've all joined together and they've declared that we will not shy away from preaching God's word. And so therefore they're coming together and a lot of them are preaching on what we talked about last week. And again I say this is providence. This was not something I could have planned in advance. That we would be right in the middle of these verses at the exact time this is going on. And I wanted to share with you a, uh, a quick statement by Pastor John MacArthur. If you don't know Pastor John MacArthur, he's been a, just a stalwart of, of the faith for over 40 years. And he serves in Grace Community Church, which is in California. I've been to this church. Uh, I went for Shepherd's Conference one year. I stood behind his pulpit. I have a cool picture of me pretending to preach behind his pulpit. <laughs> Um, and so I've, I've explored the campus and I've got to know some of the staff and uh, just I'm really thankful for John MacArthur and his ministry, especially through COVID-19. He's, he's a, just been a, a very good and loud voice for our Christian faith. And so he's actually, uh, he, he addressed 
fellow pastors and fellow churches this week with this message, and I wanted to share this with you this morning. I want to take just a moment to uh, speak personally to uh, many of you who are pastors across this country and um, in Canada and around the rest of the world. Um, it's about an email that we sent out a couple of weeks ago and kind of resending it with this uh, added video message. Uh, that email indicated that in Canada a bill was passed, uh, Bill C-4, which essentially made it a felony crime to try to convert someone from homosexuality. Buffering. Hit pause and then play again and see if it, if it does it. If not, I can give you the gist. <laughs> Sometimes if you hit it, it, it works. All right, well, I, I don't want to make you sit here and wait for it to buffer. Maybe minimize it, see if it'll run at a smaller view. If not, then we can just carry on. Okay, that's fine. Uh, from any kind of homosexual lifestyle or any kind of transgender lifestyle with up to five years sentence in jail. This is where the... Go ahead and shut it down. I don't, I don't want to do this. Um... <laughs> do you have the transcript? No, it's okay. I mean, you, you get the idea. Um, but he, he's essentially calling on ministers and churches in the United States of America to stand up with our brothers and sisters in Canada who are now facing this kind of tyranny. Because ultimately that's what it is. It's tyranny that says you cannot teach the Word of God. And if you teach the Word of God, you will go to prison. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we read that happened to the apostles in the early church. And I'd imagine that these kind of things will be on our doorstep here in America very soon as well. But I just find it, um, the providence of God, the fact that we are in these verses, because we don't have to change a thing. I don't have to jump out of a different series to talk about this topic. But it's a very relevant topic, and I'm glad that we are where we are. In fact, I was joking uh, with Chris earlier that, that maybe uh, we inspired John MacArthur by going through the Corinthian letters, but I doubt that's true. But, uh, so we are going to talk today, if we can get the lights back up, uh, today we're going to talk and continue in talking about the topic of sex. Now for some of you, especially of the older generation, even hearing that word can be uncomfortable. And especially hearing that word within the context of church. Um, I have known from talking with many of you, especially of the older generation, that anytime those topics come up, it's, it's not a very comfortable thing because that's not something you were used to growing up in the church. And I want to submit to you this morning that I think part of the reason why there was such a sexual revolution in our country and such a sexual revolution in the church is because the church refused to talk about it. It became a taboo subject that the church just said, well, I know it's in the Bible, but people are uncomfortable about it, so we're not going to talk about it. 
But the whole intention of these letters that God breathed through these authors was to be sent out to the churches and to be read to the churches. Because ultimately God is the author of sex and of marriage. And so therefore God has a good idea about how those things ought to happen. And I think of it this way. If there was some kind of a, a monster in our community, whether it be a fictional monster or a real-life person who acts like a monster, if there was a monster in our community that was a threat to our children and to our people, would we not talk about it? Would we not tell people, give people the warnings about what to avoid and, and, and how, to, how, to, how to live and how to walk properly so that this monster doesn't overtake you. Well, in the same way, sex has led many people down a very dark path. Sex in the wrong way has been a monster in people's lives. And the fact that the church has neglected to talk about this stuff has been irresponsible. But we're going to talk about it today. And I want to encourage you, if you are uncomfortable with this subject matter, consider the fact that there are people in this congregation who will benefit greatly from this topic. So if you will just bear with the subject matter, I will do my best not to cross the line and go overboard. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm really comfortable with this subject matter. This is something growing up that around the dinner table that my parents used to joke about and we used to, we used to talk very openly about, about these, this subject. And honestly, looking back, I think that was a very good thing, that we were able to have these kind of conversations with my parents. And I also think it's a very good thing that as a church, that we can have this conversation together as well. So, with that said... If your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12. But let's first go to the Lord in prayer and let Him guide us. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to love us, that has saved us, and that continues to guide us by Your Holy Spirit and by Your Word of truth. God, Your Word is truth. My heart breaks for the ministers who are faced with, with this issue all of a sudden. Uh, they're faced with jail time or, or preaching your word. But I pray, God, that you would embolden them to continue to speak your truth. And that this would be a powerful testimony across the world of just how much people love you and how much they believe that your word is indeed true. And it is indeed good and righteous. Father, change hearts and minds through this experience. Help to make those who must suffer, help them to suffer well. Help them, Lord, to not deny you, to turn away from the faith, to water down your word, but God, to remain strong. And we just pray that your word would go to the ends of the earth. Lord, and that people would be drawn to you that every knee would bow, every tongue confess that you are the Lord. So help us now this morning as we discuss this topic together to have heart, right hearts and minds and may your word heal hurts that are within marriages 
or confusion. God, bring us to a place of truth and understanding and help us not just to have it in our head, but Lord, to play it out in our lives through action. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul continues on, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So as we take a look at this section here, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings when people look at where Paul writes, all things are lawful for me. And some people take that to think like, oh, okay, so I guess, I guess all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So I can still, you know, do certain activities just recognizing that it won't be helpful. But all things, all things are lawful. But the fact is here, as we read this, he's really just repeating back to the Corinthian people what had become a slogan to the people. Because knowing that Christ had set them free, free from sin and free from that captivity, captivity and death, that, that if we're free, then we're free indeed. And we have a, a, real, a Christian liberty to now live our lives free of the fear of death. But as we find out, um, Paul continues to use this slogan. Even in chapter 10, we see this slogan repeated. Chapter 10, verses 23 through 24, he says again, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Same thing. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So the problem with this slogan that they were using is that they were wrongly invoking the law of Christian liberty. They were abusing the grace and the freedom that God had given them. And so they'd walk around and if somebody tried to condemn them of their sin, they'd say, all things are lawful for me, to each his own. That's kind of our slogan today that we've heard at least me growing up, people would say, well, to each his own. I think it's weird, I think it's bad, but to each his own. But that's an abuse of the Word of God. And it's a misrendering of the Word of God. Because the Bible is very clear that yes, God does set us free, but He doesn't set us free so that we can sin more. May it never be so. He sets us free so that we can be free to worship Him and serve Him and live in righteousness. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in his letter about the law of liberty. He says in James 1.25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in other words, you are free to live obediently to the Lord, not out of obligation, because as a believer, if you've truly been changed, it will be out of a desire a desire to live for Him and live righteously. It shouldn't be a burden for believers to pursue righteousness, is what he's saying. We also find in other places in Scripture where Christian liberty is referred to as well. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Yes, you are free, but do the right thing. And then also, 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Um, and so you see that the law of liberty, which Scripture talks about, is the fact that Christ, when He came and He died on the cross, He didn't do away with the law or the meaning of the law. He came and He fulfilled the law. And part of that fulfillment was, when we, when we talk about liberty, is we don't need to sacrifice uh, goats and bulls and, and all that kind of stuff in order to... Um, fulfill the atonement practices that were ordained by God for us to do. That was all fulfilled through Christ. As far as some of these traditions and ceremonies that Israel observed in their theocratic, theocratic nation, uh, Christ fulfilled many of those. But as far as the moral code, the moral fabric, the righteousness of God and the righteousness that He expects His believers to participate in, that still remains. God, what was sin then is sin today in terms of the moral code. And so part of loving God is loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So in other words, you might say, well, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful to your neighbor. All things are lawful for me, but not everything builds another person up. So yeah, you are free, but you're also free to live righteously, to think about other people above yourself, to do what's right and good. And so they were abusing this Christian liberty, and they weren't applying this liberty correctly to their community. We have a similar movement uh, here today. Uh, many of you have heard of the hyper-grace movement within the church. The hyper-grace movement is essentially this. All things are lawful for me. Well, Christ has forgiven us. Christ has saved us. He has redeemed us. My, my, I have my get-out-of-hell-free card. I'm going to heaven. And so therefore, it doesn't really matter what I do. And who are you to judge me for my activity? I can do whatever I want. We need to be extra gracious with people not calling people out on their sin, not confronting, rebuking, correcting, or training in righteousness, but rather we should take a passive approach and just kind of let people just kind of, you do you. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. It's all relative. It doesn't matter. That's kind of the, the hyper-grace movement which has infected many churches where people, people feel like they aren't supposed to correct one another, or aren't supposed to point out and call a sin a sin. And so, therefore, even today, just as the Corinthian church did, churches today are, are mishandling or misusing this idea of Christian liberty. Another slogan that Paul brings out is, I mean, first he corrects their false idea of Christian liberty by pointing out the fact that our Christian freedom should lead us to act in ways that are helpful to ourselves and to others, but also the freedom to exercise a little self-control. 
But how do we have self-control? How is that possible? Well, another slogan that they use, which Paul uh, follows up with in correcting, is food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Now, I'm assuming using this slogan was an attempt to justify their appetite for sex. So they, they used appetite for food and they compared that with an appetite for sex. Because what's more natural than the desire to eat food, right? I mean, some of us right now, we, we could smell that soup out there and it's just within our, our, our carnal human animal instinct. We're like, mm, you know, you know. We, we want the pastor to hurry up so we can get back there and eat some food. I mean, it, it's just kind of a natural instinct to eat. And we need food for survival. And so what I, I think that he used this uh, statement for, the slogan for, was to say that in the same way, we hunger and we crave for sexual intimacy. And so therefore, all sexual intimacy is natural and normal. We were born this way. We should be able to to appetites when it comes to sexual desire. Same as food, no real difference. And so this was their false, their, their attempt to justify. But Paul retorts to this uh, saying, this slogan, by saying, don't you know that God will destroy both one and the other? Your appetites and your body, both will be destroyed. Which is why ultimately, God calls us to commit our lives, our appetites, our bodies to Him. Because they belong to Him. Well, how can we exercise self-control? Well, Paul talks about the fact, he points to the fact that it, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead can help you to control yourself. If God can raise someone from the dead. Can you not suppress your sexual appetite for the evening? Yes, you can because he can help you. God can empower you to do that if you let him. If you don't push him away. If you don't become like Bilbo, you know, obsessed with the ring, mine, and, and you can't control yourself. But if you can submit to him and allow him to empower you to control yourself, and control your desires, then he will do that. So then Paul continues to qualify this statement about how our bodies are made for him. Our bodies are not made ultimately for food. Or our bodies aren't made ultimately for sex. Our bodies are ultimately made for him. And so he calls on us to glorify God in our body. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Or you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So why should we flee from sexual immorality? I mean, 
It is a natural urge and a natural desire, right? So why, why should we flee from that? And one might think falsely that, well, because we're saved, it doesn't really matter what we do in our bodies. I mean, we have been promised a heavenly body, right? An imperishable body. And we like to talk about how, oh yeah, I'm going to drop about 30 pounds when I get to heaven. You know, God's going to give me a, a perfect body. I'm not going to have any more aches and pains. And, and so it really doesn't matter what I do with this old mortal coil. I, you know, whatever. I'll just be reckless with it. Who cares? But it does matter what you do with your body. Because Christ has purchased you. And it, was, it came at a heavy cost came at Him dying on the cross. You belong to Him. You no longer belong to your natural urges. You belong to Him. And Paul gives us in this section five reasons why we should flee from sexual immorality. First of all, our bodies are members of Christ. Now the use of members here which the word is melos, it's obviously meant to give us a picture of a human body, because that's usually what it refers to. The, the members of a body. I have my hand, I have my other hand, I have my feet, I have my legs, I have my head. Those are all members, but one body. And so he's saying that when we are born again, we become members of the body of Christ. In other words, we become extensions of, of God's heart, mind, and will. The church. I mean, are we not the church of God? Are we not called to be the hands and the feet of Christ in this world? We are members of Christ's body, doing His work. Now, obviously, Christ is the head. Christ is the heart. Christ is, he is driving this ship. But He also involves us and being able to do the work that he would have us do. And when we look through this letter, Paul uses the same analogy of the member uh, to explain that as a church, we're, we're not just one individual or another. You know, it's not just dependent on, upon a pastor or elders or anybody else. It's dependent on all of us. That we are all members of the body of Christ. Some are gifted in one way, some are gifted in another. And we complement each other if we are unified, if we are working together. And so, the hand has no place to say to the eye that you don't belong here. Our body needs the eye just as much as it needs the hand. And all of us need Christ. And so, in light of this fact, if we are truly members of the body of Christ, then why would we join together our bodies with a prostitute? Why would we commit sexual immorality? Why would we do any other sex act outside of God's approved sexual activity within the confines of a marriage between man and a woman? Why would we violate any of that? Why would we pervert any of that if we are truly an extension of Christ? Because at that point, we become, we become crippled, so to speak. We, we, we cripple the efforts of the church, of Christ, as a member of the church, and as a member of Christ. We cripple those efforts when we sin. And so that's the first reason why we should flee. 
is because our bodies are members of Christ. The second reason I see is that we become one with those we have sex with. Now, becoming one with another human being in the sexual context is a highly sacred and spiritual event. And in essence, this is the seal of a marriage union. Now, it, Paul talks about this as a great, great mystery, this idea of two becoming one flesh. I can't explain this to you in a naturalistic sense. This is a supernatural event that happens. Because yes, as two bodies come together in the context of, of sexual activity, then in a sense they become one. But it's even deeper than that. It's a spiritual thing. That's, your spirits are being entwined in the same way that your bodies are being entwined. And it's a beautiful and an awesome thing that God has made. And so when you do marry and you do have sex together, that is you intertwining your souls and your will and your life and your path together. And it's a visible representation of that supernatural reality. And so, in this way, why would we become one with anybody else besides someone that we've stood before God and other witnesses and vowed to love faithfully as Christ has vowed to love the church? Why would we violate that at all? Why would we become one with a prostitute or a harlot? So therefore, we should flee from sexual immorality because of that supernatural reality. Third, sexual immorality is an offense to our bodies, or in other words, to God's creation, how He has designed us to be. Paul makes the point that every other sin we commit outside the body, but when we commit sexual immoral acts, it is a sin or offense against our own body. And if we think of our bodies in terms of being like tools, right? When, when somebody manufactures a tool, it's intended for a purpose or for a use, right? I, I like to think in terms of, uh, of sports. The, the person who invented the basketball, invented the basketball to be bounced and to be thrown through a hoop, which is why if you ever play basketball with people and they start dribbling the ball like a soccer player, or they kick it across the court, people are deeply offended by that. Because you are perverting the game of basketball. How dare you kick it like those communists do? And by the way, I was a soccer player. I love soccer. I don't actually think soccer players are communists. Just need to put that footnote in there. But I do get offended as well when people use the ball's in the wrong way. Same thing with tools. I mean, have you ever seen a guy like trying to hammer a nail with a, with a wrench? And isn't it just kind of, I mean, it makes you laugh. It's kind of funny. You have, yeah, you use what you have, right? But still, it's, that's not the intended use. And it doesn't work nearly as well as a hammer would work. Our bodies are the same way. If we think of our bodies in terms of being like a tool, God created this tool to be used in one proper way. And that is to be with one 
person. There's a lot of science behind this too. That the longer you're with one exclusive partner, the more that you conform in many different ways to that partner. It is truly a, a supernatural, even a scientific thing that takes place. And this is all part of God's design. And so to violate or to pervert that design is to pervert God's good design in general. And so sexual immorality is an offense to our bodies and to God's design. Fourthly, sexual immorality is an offense to the Holy Spirit. So sexual immorality is an offense to God the Father. Sexual immorality is an offense to God the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul refers to our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you growing up in the church, did your parents ever say, well, Jesus lives inside you. Jesus lives inside your heart. I remember when I was a little kid, I, I used to, my parents told me that when I received Jesus as my Savior, and I took a very literal picture that, yeah, Jesus is like sitting in my heart somewhere. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, I, he's, he's inside of me. That, that's cool. And I, as a kid, I didn't think that was weird at all. But it's true that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, does indwell every believer. That he, in, in a supernatural way, he is indwelling inside of you. He is a part of you. It's deeper than just, well, there's this God up in heaven and I talk to him sometimes. No, he, he is within you. He is in you. Moving you. Motivating you. Convicting you. Encouraging you. Reminding you of the scriptures. God is in you through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, which we covered a while ago, says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Therefore, since our bodies represent the temple of God, which the Holy Spirit dwells, we ought to take care of that temple. John 14.26, Jesus told his disciples, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the church, onto believers, as God empowered them to do his work. Consider Acts 1.8, which says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit within you is what empowers you to have self-control, to reject temptations and urges, which you were not able to do before Christ. But He empowers you to do this. And so therefore, we should take care of the vessel that God has given us, that God dwells within. And Paul wrote to the church of Rome in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And this whole concept will come in handy a little bit later when we talk a little bit more about practical application, because Paul is going to call on believers to pray, to pray with their spouse in concerning sex. And so... If Jesus lives in your heart, if he truly does, 
if your body truly is a temple, as the word says, then we should not participate in any sexually immoral or sexually perverted act. And that's anything from sex outside of marriage, sex with yourself, self-pleasuring, sex with a same-sex partner. All those things are sexually immoral and sexual perversions of God's creation. The one area that God created for mankind to participate and enjoy sex in with his approval is in the marriage context. One man and one woman together. Finally, the fifth thing, sexual immorality is an offense to the work of Christ. So it's an offense to God the Father and how he created us. It's an offense to the Holy Spirit, which indwells us. And it's also an offense to the Son who did the work of our redemption, who's the one who suffered and died so that we might be saved. You were bought with a price. This refers to the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And whenever we sin, we spit in the face of the very one who came and died in our place. Because why did he die? Because we're sinners. And so when we sin, it's a great insult to Christ himself. It's an insult to his work. And the de- his death on the cross was so much more than just a demonstration of love. It was a transaction. It was a transaction that took place. When he died, he died in our place. And so therefore we should honor him with our body. We should honor him by living righteously. And so, Paul ultimately says that we are to flee from sexual immorality. And I love it whenever that word is used, flee. Because he doesn't just say, casually walk away from. He doesn't say, walk for a little while, turn around and be enticed again. He, He doesn't say even trot. He doesn't say skip. He says, flee. Flee as if there's a tsunami coming at you. Like grab whatever you can and just go. Just flee, run, turn, go. 180, repent, leave, flee. Urgency. And so this is ultimately the call for the church is that if there's any sexual immorality in your life and a lot of Christians struggle with pornography, self-pleasure, that kind of sexual immorality. Flee from that. Flee from whatever you have to do. If you've ever seen the movie Fireproof, uh, he, he takes his computer outside and he, he just beats it to a pulp because his computer was his weakness. And so he, he eliminated that from his life. He, he surgically removed that problem right away. If your phone is a problem, it'd be better for you to smash it than to continue sinning. Uh, well, as Christ would say, it's better to gouge out your eye than, than to continue lusting. I'd hope that you wouldn't have to go to that extreme. But if you need to break your phone, if you need to gouge out your eye, then it's better to continue, better to do that than to continue in that sin. And so we need to take this seriously. If you, if you believe any of this, that God created us this way, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ died for your sins and that your body belongs to him, and that it's a temple, then we need to flee from sexual immorality, take it seriously, 
and stop playing games with our desires and our appetites. But after hearing all this, someone might get the wrong impression that oh, sex is dirty, sex is bad. No, sex is a good thing because God created it to be a good thing. God created it for husbands and wives, not only to enjoy pleasure together, but so that we can procreate, we can create life through that, through that experience. It is a good thing within the context of marriage. Don't ever let anybody make it a taboo subject. We should be celebrating the fact that we have... Sorry, did you say that again? This happened last week, too. <laughs> this happened... I need to figure out how to turn this stupid thing off. <clears throat> I, yes! Get off me, Satan! There we go. It, it was a Christmas gift for my wife. I don't want to smash it with a hammer yet. It's not a... It's not a problem. <clears throat> but let's move on. Uh, chapter 7. Now here's some practical rules or helpful rules for sex within marriage. This part's going to be fun. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man, to not, uh, man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And this is talking about outside the context of marriage. Um, but also there were some in Corinth who got the wrong idea that, well, we should abstain from all sex. Again, they, they got the idea that, well, sex is bad, sex is dirty. Only do it once to have a child, then that's it. No, but Paul, Paul is going to correct that really quick. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, and that's an important point, which we'll get to a little bit later. I wish that all were as I, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. All right. So, unless God has uniquely gifted you to not care or have an appetite about sex at all, then Paul says that each and every one of you should find a spouse, one who you can be devoted to, one who you can flesh out all of your sexual desires with. Now he says this because of the fact that in their generation, it was, it was a wicked generation. It was a sinful generation, a sex-saturated culture. Now do you think our culture today is sex-saturated? Do you think it's perverted? I mean, you can't hardly turn on any kind of a, a program on TV without you know, somebody flaunting their parts in, in your face. Um, it, it exists in all those different areas of our society. And so I would say the same thing to the church today. I would counsel the same thing with young people today. That unless God has really supernaturally and uniquely uh, gifted you and called you not to be married, then I would say you should pursue getting a wife or a husband. Now... Um, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul, who, who says it's good not to marry, 
as I'm not married, he would have been about in his 30s or his 40s when he wrote this. So he, he is beyond his prime, so to speak. His libido, his, his sexual desires are not as strong as they once were. So that, that's important to point out. Um, but regardless of age, there are exceptions sometimes. That people do in, in, indeed are gifted in that way. And I don't think we should, if somebody says, I have no desire to be married, I have no temptation for sexual immorality, I'm just serving the Lord, like if they want to, you know, uh, like how they have the nuns who take that vow of celibacy. If somebody has that kind of unique character who can deal with that, then we should encourage that. Uh, we, we shouldn't diminish or demean anybody who says, no, I'm just, I, I don't need a husband or a wife in this moment. It's not something I struggle with. But Paul does say that because there is so much sexual immorality, that most, that most will need to get married in order to flesh that out. Now I want you to notice verses 3 through 6. These are rules for marriage. He says, do not deprive your spouse of sex. Paul says that sex within marriage is a conjugal right. And the Greek word for conjugal there is ophile which is ultimately a legal term that uh, is referring to obligation or debt. Now, hopefully, when you marry, you will actually have a physical attraction to your spouse and you will actually want to have sex with them. If I ever had a young couple who came into my office wanting marriage, pre-marriage counseling and they said, we're not attracted to each other at all. In fact, I'm kind of repulsed by them and I, I don't really want to touch them, I don't like the idea of touching them, I would probably counsel them not to get married. There should be some level of attraction there. I mean, consider uh, Genesis 29, 17 through 18. Jacob, when, uh, when he was duped into marrying Leah, when he really wanted to marry Rachel, consider these words here. It says, Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And attraction isn't always based off of body type or style or anything like that. Attraction, it's, it's a supernatural thing. Now, some people like to say, well, it's based off of scent. And my wife and I used to do this really weird thing where we'd sniff each other's sideburns because it, it, was, it was like catnip to us. You know? Weird, yes, weird, I know. But there's truth to that, because that, your, your uh, pheromones or whatever, your, your, your scent is strongest kind of in, in your hairline right here. And we confirm that we are attracted to each other by scent, because we loved each other's scent. So, but there's also something to be said about when you look into the eyes of another person. When you look into their eyes, because as they say, your eyes are the window to your soul. There's something very... Um, just miraculous about the eyes when you look into another human being's eyes and attraction can come from there. Jacob, when he looked into Leah's eyes, who he was duped into marrying, they looked weak to him. They weren't full of life. It didn't excite him. It didn't invigorate him. He didn't get lost in her eyes. But Rachel, who was beautiful in form and had the light of life in her eyes, he was attracted to that. When I think about my wife, 
uh, when we first started dating, it was from a high school dance. We were dancing to Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. And I remember we were just, we were alone on that dance floor. There was other people there, but we were alone. But I was just lost in her. I have never seen more amazing eyes than in that moment. Just truly lost. And I always think of it in terms of this. It's like that song, Dreamweaver, you know, where you've got the sparkles around your eyes. Oh, Dreamweaver. And I was just like stuck and lost in her eyes. And so attraction is not reserved to just physique or anything like that, but superficial things. But there is a supernatural connection that happens that no matter what you look like today or 20 years from now, you still are attracted. And that's something that God does. And so the Bible says, Paul says here, that don't de deprive each other. Don't deprive each other. And this shouldn't be a, a difficult concession for believers. Because ultimately, when you get married, this is something you're giving your spouse permission to do with you, to participate with you in. And so, but there are times where you might have to put a, a pause on sex within your marriage. First of all, by agreement. As you know, marriage is about compromise. And so there, there might come a time where you cannot have sex with one another. You just had a baby and you're supposed to wait a certain amount of time. You know, so hopefully by agreement you can agree that, yeah, for the best interest of you and your health, that we are going to put a pause on sex in our marriage. But also if you really love your spouse, you'll be willing to compromise. Because... How many of us know uh, the rejection of, oh, I'm just too tired tonight? CJ knows that. <laughs> I think Brad raised his hand too. Anybody else willing to admit that? No. I'll tell you, as I'm approaching my 40s, that's becoming my excuse now too. Oh, honey, I'm just so exhausted. Yeah, I have a really bad headache. Oh, I ate something that didn't agree with me. I just feel bloated. No, not tonight. So there might come a time where your spouse just says, oh, I'm just really not in the mood. And if you really love your spouse, you should be willing to compromise and say, okay, I respect that, but I'm really in the mood. Can we tomorrow morning? Can we tomorrow night? You know, can we put it on the calendar so I, I know what I'm looking forward to? Because as we know, too, there, men and women peak at different times. Men peak from the moment we hit puberty. I mean, some would say through our whole life, but realistically, through our, you know, through our 30s, maybe mid-30s, that's kind of when things start slowing down. But women peak in their 30s. And so remember this, because women, if you are rejecting your husband through his prime, then when it comes time for your prime, he will have an opportunity to reject you as well. So remember this. But we should really be compromising together. And if you are putting a pause on sex, it should be by mutual agreement together. And you should both be able to say, yes, we both agree. Let's put a pause on it. But also, um, another helpful rule he puts out there is that if you do put a pause on it, it should be for a limited time. 
Like, don't let it stretch into months, into years, into decades. That unless you can, unless you, both of you are like 80 and you're like, are we done? Yeah, we're done with that. Unless, unless you reach that point, then really you should be committed to having sex regularly together because it is a good and a healthy thing to do, for married couples to do. And so, uh, even if you do put a pause on it, sit down and make a plan to reconnect soon. The next thing, if you do put a pause on it, be devoted to prayer. Because Lord knows, uh, just as we fast, uh, just as when we fast from food, we pray to God, right? Because fasting is hard. Anybody fast? Like truly fast from food? I mean, that first meal is difficult. Because your, your, your hunger, your appetite for it, it it's, it's difficult. Same thing when you put a pause or if you fast from sex in your marriage. You know, that first night that goes by, it's, it's tough. And you need to pray. And you need to pray together. So just as with fasting with food, as you get those hungers and those urges, then you drop to your knees and you pray to God for the strength to make it through, for His help. Total reliance on Him. In marriage, if you get that urge, you call on your wife, and instead of having sex together, you bow down and you pray together, which is ultimately a deeper form of intimacy than sex will ever be. Praying with your spouse. And I hope that you have developed a really good prayer life within your marriage, because if you haven't, you're missing great intimacy with your spouse in that way. And so, if you do need to put a pause on it, be devoted to prayer. And the reason for this is because Satan is a tricky, evil tempter. And he, know, and he likes to feed upon our appetites, whether we're hungry for food or we're hungry for sex. And so when we put a pause on sex and we're, our temptation is elevated, then Satan likes to swoop in and he likes to put ideas in your head. Especially, uh, this is why Paul is saying this, if you are constantly rejecting your spouse, then you are setting them up for failure. If you are rejecting your spouse sexually, you are setting them up for failure. This doesn't mean that if they do fail, they do commit adultery, they do uh, participate in self-pleasure and pornography, that it's your fault, but you certainly didn't help anything by rejecting them. Because I know in, in my life, in my experience, times where, where I've been rejected, uh, I, I roll over in bed and just billion thoughts go into my head and temptations hit me like a freight train in that moment. So just experientially and also from the wisdom of Scripture, it's not a good thing to reject your spouse unless there's some kind of a mutual agreement. And really, husbands and wives, how long does it take? Not that long. Really, really. I mean, it can be over really quick. And, and people, people who really are hungry for it, it usually is over pretty quick. So you can't spare five minutes of time, 10 minutes of time, maybe even 20 minutes of time if you're lucky. If you can't spare that amount of time out of your day to satisfy your spouse, what are you doing? So, 
don't make tempting easy on Satan. Because a true believer will be faithful and committed to pleasing their spouse in all sorts of ways. So don't let your spouse suffer sexual agony to satisfy them. All right, um, before we close up here, we have just a couple more things to address. Paul mentioned that this is a concession, not a command. And that's an important point. Because there are certain biblical expectations and commands concerning marriage, especially, um, especially for example, if you marry, don't divorce. I mean, that, that's a pretty straightforward command from Scripture. There are obviously exceptions to that throughout Scripture. But Paul states here that th th these helpful tips are not the same thing. Th this is not the Ten Commandments. These are simply practical and helpful ways that you can be happy in your marriage, that you can resist temptation in your marriage. And of course, this is God-breathed as well, so of course, it's good advice. And it's something that we as all believers should receive as good advice from the very Word of God. So take this to heart. Don't deny each other of that pleasure which God created to be good. Finally, what if you're single? What if you're single? He says, verse 8, To the unmarried and to the widow I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, I say that Paul was about in his 30s or 40s, maybe even older, when he wrote this. So he got to a place where he was satisfied with his calling in Christ. He didn't need a wife. He wasn't in pursuit of a wife. He, he had moved beyond sexual desires. And there's many of you who may be a widow. Uh, maybe you, you had a divorce in, in time. Maybe your, your spouse was cruel or... or uh, committing adultery against you and you, you divorced. And maybe you're at the point where you just think, I've gone through that and I don't want to go through that ever again. And I'm fine just being committed to my church. I'm fine being committed to my, my kids and my family. You know, may, maybe that's where you're at. But most people will start to get lonely. Most people I talk to, especially young, young widows, or young divorcees will start to get lonely. Um, in that case, Paul says, if you're burning with that passion, it's good that you be married. And so I would say to all young people, if, if you're burning with that passion, pray to God for a future husband or a future wife so that, that you can satisfy those desires. And if you're a widow or you're divorced, Pray the same thing. If, if you are feeling lonely, if you long to hold someone again, I, I remember talking to a gentleman uh, who was divorced from years past, and he's older, and he just said, I just really miss holding a woman. I just want to hold a woman. It was in his heart and his desire. He was burning with that passion. And so we prayed together that God would bring him a wife, someone he could hold. And he did. And so, if you are single, flee from sexual immorality. Be patient and wait for the Lord to bring you a spouse. 
Because when it comes to the marriage bed, that is the place to flesh out all of your desires. Because as we look across the world and we see just all these crazy sexual things going on and as temptations fill your heart and mind, the marriage bed is the place to flesh out all your desires. And that's between you and your spouse. What you do there does not need to be aired out in front of everybody. Save the gross details. But if you have a desire, it's not a bad thing. But you should take it to the Lord in prayer. And I, I hope that as we consider all these things, the, these truths in the scripture, that, that we will put them into practice in our marriages. That we'll put them into practice in our, in our single life that we will turn away from and flee from sexual desire, that we won't be afraid to talk about these things amongst one another. If you're struggling in your marriage, if you're living in a sexless marriage and you're, you're miserable in that regard, it's good to get together and, and talk with people about it. Talk with your spouse first. But if they, if, if they won't listen to you, if they continue to push you away, maybe find and confide in a brother or sister We'll pray with you, because that's a powerful thing. And so, let's pray now uh, to the Lord. I want to also pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Canada um, and across the world who are facing difficulty to even talk about this kind of stuff. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for getting us through this material. It's not comfortable for everybody but we know that it is useful, it's good, it's your word. How could it be wrong? How could it be bad? And so, Father, help us all to not only hear your words, but also to do what your word says. Help us to love our spouse. Help us to be compassionate and understanding. Help us to compromise. Help us to be committed to the pleasure and the satisfaction of our spouse. And Father, help us just to rejoice in what you have made for us. Because you have made sex to be good in the right context. And so we celebrate and rejoice in that fact. Thank you for your Bible, which guides us in truth. Your word is truth. Please, Lord, protect and be with our brothers and sisters up north. Be with our brothers and sisters in California in Australia, Germany, China, all these places where it's really hard to be a Christian right now. I just pray that you would be with them, embolden them, strengthen them, help them to keep fighting the good fight and walking according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed, won't you join us for soup?